Oh my gosh, I'm adopting a puppy right now. But I realize what's at home. Oh no, I have nothing. Well, except unconditional love. But yeah, no crate, no pee pee pads, no dental chews for his little puppy teeth. Before I doubt myself as a new parent, I just get Instacart to deliver everything from PetSmart. Easy, just like raising a puppy is going to be, right? Get pet essentials from PetSmart with Instacart. Visit instacart.com to get free delivery on your first three orders. Offer valid for a limited time. $10 minimum per order. Additional terms apply. Hello and welcome to The Shift, the podcast that aims to tell the no-holds-barred truth about being a woman post-40. Created and hosted by me, journalist and author... Sam Baker. When was the last time you read a book where the central character was not just perimenopausal, but also talked and thought about menopause and its impact on her life? That was the driving force for my guest this week, Dana Spiotta. What if, she asked herself, the lead characters of some of her favourite books had had a hot flush? The resulting novel, Wayward, is the story of 53-year-old Sam, who, in the midst of the chaos and perverse clarity of menopause, falls in love with a rundown house buys it and leaves her husband, teenage daughter and the suburban security of married life in pursuit of a new her. There's something about being middle-aged that allows a kind of humility that I think is good and sort of maybe even gets to this kind of acceptance of some of these mortal things about your finiteness of your life and how you as an individual have only so much time and maybe that's okay. Dana joined me from her home in Syracuse, upstate New York to talk about accidentally writing a menopause novel, how her own perimenopause informed her characters, what happens when menopause and puberty collide, and why people are still grossed out by the truth about female bodies. That is quite a microphone you have there. (laughs) I mean, it's not quite as big as it looks, but (laughs) I might prop myself on some books and then it's not quite so huge. Are you in your study? Yeah, I'm in my office in Syracuse. It's very cold here. It's like 20 degrees Fahrenheit. Oh, God. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's winter. <laughs> yeah. We get a lot of snow. But the real super bad cold that we've had the last couple of weeks doesn't last very long usually. So I like the snow, but not that super cold. No, no I like snow, but I like it with sun. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So you can go out in it. Yeah. Very specific weather requirements. So do you live in, in I mean, this is going to make no sense to anybody who hasn't read Wayward, but do you live in the a suburban house or the downtown house? I live in the downtown house. Yeah. <laughs> I grew up in houses like that. But yeah, I live in a house that's about seven blocks from the house that I describe in the book that's based on a real house. Yeah. I walk by that house frequently. And that's partially why I wrote about it, because I kept noticing this abandoned, formerly beautiful house. I mean, I know so many people, myself included, who are completely obsessed with that Instagram account, Cheap Old Houses. Oh, yeah, I I follow them for sure. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) There's a lot of Instagram accounts that are about old ruined houses. Uh, There's a couple that are that I follow that are interesting. And there's one that's Syracuse specific Syracuse history. That's quite good. Yeah. And people outside Syracuse follow it because the guy who runs it is just so good. He's a good photographer and he's just has a great eye for these things. Yeah. So it's kind of an excellent way of getting your um, your own, I don't want to say guilty pleasures, because why guilt? Why be guilty? In aesthetic the book? pleasure, right? Yeah, aesthetic yeah. pleasure. Yeah. So did you kind of set out to write what's turned out to be a menopause novel, whatever one of those is? Right. When I was going through some menopausal 
perimenopausal, I guess properly is what it's called, right? Symptoms. I uh, was sort of surprised that women didn't talk about it more or write about it more because it seemed rather dramatic to me than insomnia, as well as the things that you had heard about the hot flashes. And, and I guess it's one of those things where when you have an experience that you're not noticing that people are talking about it because you don't really care that much. And then when yeah. you get there, you're like, oh, okay. So some people are talking about this and writing about this. And much a part of the book that I was writing, I wanted it to be very specific and about the physical aspect of it, of the body aspect of it. And I wanted to avoid a lot of the cliches of the midlife crisis novel or the midlife crisis story, because I guess there's movies as well and um, TV shows, female edition. So that was quite deliberate, all of that. And yeah, and I thought that it just seemed like an interesting thing to apply a fictional lens to. Yeah. To inhabit that body. That was partially what inspired the book for sure. And it's funny, I was th thinking that there's a kind of shame about menopause still, even among very, um, whatever you want to call it, feminist, progressive women um, who've seem to inhabit themselves with great authority and confidence. And yet there's something about menopause where you want to whisper it a little bit because it's admitting that you're aging in this way. And it's admitting that this fragility or change is happening in your body. And there is a cost to that, right? That people are going to know that you're aging, that your body's aging. And we still haven't gotten over that. And I don't think it's so much that we don't think that we're beautiful or attractive, which used to be the kind of the old cliche about it, but just that it's a kind of vulnerability. And I think people think it's kind of gross, you know, I think it's because <laughs> it's a female body, you know, thing. That's why I wanted to press hard and be very um, specific about that. I felt, it, you know, let's write about it. And I like the idea that people who don't have those symptoms would read about it. And so there's a point in the book where Sam, and I, I'm sure you appreciated the name of the, <laughs> of the character, wants to shriek menopause, menopause, menopause at these young women. And I have to admit, I sometimes have that impulse about it. So, so I think that those were all the things that kind of figured into it when I began. I mean, I definitely felt exactly the same. I mean, there's to a certain extent, there's people are talking about it, but you're not listening. I remember when I started asking my friends yeah. when I went into perimenopause in mid, my mid-40s, and they were all like, la, 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 I'm not listening. <laughs> <laughs> like it might be catching and like yeah, you say yeah. these are all like exactly smart women who knew know how to be themselves and own it and I think that shame is the right word it's like women are age shamed and men aren't yeah and I think that we're allowed to gracefully age, right? It's become culturally acceptable to have some wrinkles and to have some gray hair, even chic in some ways, right? In certain circles, but to kind of talk about menopause. And I remember talking to some older women at a writing conference and they, they were just like, oh yeah, I had brain fog. I couldn't write. It goes on for years. And I said, what? What do you mean? <laughs> and then I talked to my gynecologist and she's younger than I am. And she said, yeah, probably, probably gain a lot of weight. You'll probably not be able to remember the words. And I said, I need to remember words. I'm a writer. Oh my God. It's unacceptable. Job. Yes. So, <laughs> so it was a bigger deal than I realized, right? It wasn't just that your periods are irregular and you have some hot flashes, which is what you see in the movies, right? Yeah. Mm, yeah. I've really been thinking about this. And I th do think The Wayward is the first novel that I've read where the perimenopausal character, A, there's more than one. Right. You know, <laughs> there's actually more than one. And where it's 
fully centered, I suppose. Well, it is. It's a book about the experience, her experience of perimenopause and the impact that that has on her life. And I think, you know, normally when a character is allowed to overtly be menopausal, she just might get a, you know, a fan out of her designer handbag and wave it around ineffectually. Yes. And yeah, that's it. That's that's your menopause over with. That's done. We did that. Yeah, I wanted to be very explicit. And I wanted to be an explicit subject. I didn't want it to be, oh, you know, she has a fading spell and, and you could maybe think it's a menopause or maybe it's something emotional. Yeah. And I think that kind of just asserting it as something that's worthy of a literary examination to me felt important. I've read a lot of books and I have no problem reading books about male aging. And, there are a few. And there are quite a few. And and the effects on their bodies and, and their uh, sexuality. And uh, it seemed important to write about that experience. And I hope that younger women and men and all kinds of people who don't have menopausal symptoms uh, would still find it interesting because it's human. It's human experience. I imagine that's one of the things that puts people off and not reading it, writing about it, because I can imagine that it's number one on Amazon in menopausal fiction. <laughs> A small category, but yeah. <laughs> one I hope to dominate. Uh, <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, most readers are women. I've gotten a lot of men who have read it and younger women and just a, a wide group of readers. I mean, it's really a story about mortality in a lot of ways, because one of the things I was really thinking about is being middle-aged and kind of confronting, because the character in the book's mother is dying and her daughter's going off into the world, you know, off to college. The reason why menopause is important to this character is because of her insomnia. She's sort of forced to think about these things that she might just stuff away otherwise. I'm not one of these menopause is a gift people, but <laughs> I do think that you can recast this sort of um, dramatic line. And I think what's interesting about menopause is, is its drama, right? It is kind of like hard to ignore. You can't pretend your body is not reaching its ultimate point, right? It's going in one direction. And so it's a, it's a kind of reminder to assess, are you on the right path? Where have you been and where do you plan to go with what's left? I was very interested in this idea, this kind of 19th century idea of extra life because you'd be liberated from fertility. And of course, fertility was a much more fraught thing in which women died, in which children died. And so to be liberated from that and still have if you're lucky, decades before you die, meant that you could do other things. You know, reclaiming that idea uh, is interesting too. And, and But also everything is undercut because my character and the way that I write fiction is very much engaged with kind of contradiction and paradox and, and that self-inquiry, which on the one hand is self-effacing, but on the other hand, is very narcissistic. I like that tension of things where they're kind of going in two directions. I mean, one of the things I really loved was that her attitude to the aging process was that kind of mixture of, yeah, I'm going to embrace it, but also finding it kind of repellent, yes. you know, and like <laughs> the way that, you know, I mean, I kind of always make a joke of it, but like the flesh duvet, that it kind of appears a bit overnight. And then you spend the next however many years, probably forever, in a some sort of battle with this back fat that you didn't have <laughs> last week. And that kind of that kind of sense that you're not meant to care. Right. You know, it's like as like as you were saying earlier, as as a feminist, I'm not meant to care about that. But then um, then I'm a total traitor to the cause because I really do care. Right. Right. And I I love the way that you're, you know, you're Sam wrestling with that kind of 
sense of being an age traitor and a kind of her own midlife misogyny. Yes, yes. And she realizes, I mean, and it's complicated because it is kind of, it's in this very specific um, social context where she is a, you know, a woman of considerable privilege. um, Mm -hmm. And she's uh, sort of sees herself when she looks at other women and sees them, she, she's, her own self-critique means that she's very judgmental about other people. Yeah. I mean, she watches the election of 2016 and how Hillary Clinton, who's one could critique in many ways, but was often critiqued for being an older woman in such high relief, uh, especially with the way that Donald Trump would talk about her and her body and her aging and, and how it didn't apply to him, even though he was older and in much more decrepit shape. And, uh, <laughs> and, so you could, <laughs> and you couldn't miss the kind of contempt that the culture sort of applied to her specifically because she was an older woman. She was an irritant, you know? And so that is in us, right? We sort of like absorb that in the culture, that misogyny, I think. And you have to kind of actively sort of unpack it and say, well, what is this about? And part of it is legit. I mean, a lot of the women at this one group that she goes to, you know, the younger women sort of say, the world is your fault. And she's like, yeah, they're kind of right. Like we're comfortably Mm -hmm. here. And some of this is on us. We didn't fix things that needed to be fixed, everything. And so I think it's okay to be self-critical, but then of course she goes overboard and yeah, she sort of hates herself for the wrong thing sometimes, I guess is what I would say. (laughs) It's like that kind of, how would you put it? I suppose Gen X confusion, if you like, which you nail brilliantly of being the tiny generation between the boomers and millennials and kind of not quite knowing what you're meant to be doing and feeling like you're definitely doing it wrong. Yeah. I mean, I think Gen X, we have a lot of humility. We were kind of, you know, the post-60s generation that just has a different relationship to irony and, and maybe a little too embarrassed about earnestness, right? And I think that's a fault. And so I think we get called out by the millennials and I was like, yeah, they're right. You know, they're right. My daughter, I'm like, yeah, you're right. But on the other hand, you know, I still have a sense of our superiority. Yeah. <laughs> um, because, uh, yeah, there's a lot of, I think, a tolerance for self-critique and clarity that I like, you know? And I think that that Sam has that too, that she's trying to see herself accurately and she is in good faith doing that. And if that costs her a lot, that's okay. And I don't think that's a bad way to be. And so I think that, yeah, I was sort of interested in, in all the complications of being. What I think I like about being middle-aged and I think that's quite a bit in the book, is that she does have this very narcissistic sort of navel-gazy kind of, albeit, I hope, humorous uh, approach in the beginning. But as the novel progresses, there's this expression now about centering yourself, which is like, I hate to use expressions that are overused, but she does kind of place herself in the world where she isn't the center in a way that I think all human beings ought to do. And there's something about being middle-aged that allows a kind of humility that I think is good and sort of maybe even gets to this kind of acceptance of some of these mortal things about your finiteness of your life and how you as an individual have only so much time. And maybe that's okay, you know? So I think this kind of accepting of the terms that she comes to, I do think that's something that happens in middle age that is kind of great, you know, that you can still remember what it's like to be young and understand that, but you can also, you know, look ahead at what comes and accept that. And you're still there in both directions in a way that I think is really kind of such a compelling place to be. There's kind of that conflict, isn't there? Because you're at a point where you like, you know, it's not all about you. But also, 
I don't know about you, but I got to a point where I started to feel like I don't have to do everything that everybody else wants. Yes. So it's like the balance of those two things, which is seemingly be in opposition, but in a way aren't. I agree with you. You're right. It's so connected. And I think there's a part in the book where Sam talks about the anger that she feels. It unnerves her, the sudden feelings that she has. It is comparable, I think, somewhat when you have PMS and you yell at someone or you get angry. It's not that those aren't real feelings, but your ability to suppress your feelings kind of isn't there. And I think with that middle age feeling is it's not that you can't. It's just you don't care to, you know, like you don't really want to suppress your feelings all the time. The energy that it requires isn't as interesting or as necessary. And and so I, I see that and I see that with older women, like my mother's age in their 80s, that that kind of continues, that by the time they get to your 80s, they just just have no filter at all and just kind of let it rip all the time. And I think it's different for women than men. And I think it's because women are really taught to take care of other people emotionally. Even if a stranger is confronting you, I think my impulse is always to kind of make it nice, make it okay. And that takes a lot of your energy. And so I think, you know, you, you have those feelings and yes, sometimes it costs you to overreact in a situation. And, and I do, you don't like feeling out of control, but that expression of emotion that you have is also something that suppressing takes a lot of energy too. So finding out that you can do it and you don't have to take care of everyone else's reaction all the time that you can weather somebody not liking you or something that does change you. I think. And it's kind of completely contrary to what we're taught, you know, through our childhood and school and all those things that you have to make it nice. You have to be good and not be obnoxious. And and then the language that's used around women, you know, like if men are angry, they're powerful and firm. And women, if they're angry, are hysterical and out of control. And, you know, um, men are strategic, women are calculating. Yes, And women are being aggressive and that's never, yeah. And men are, you know, ambitious and women are, yeah. So it's still really fraught. And I think so much of that is internalized that sometimes it's very hard to express yourself. But I do think there's a cost. There's a value, of course, to making other people feel comfortable and happy and and smoothing things over. But, you know, moving the needle even a little bit into sort of understanding Mm -hmm. that that also costs you something. I, I do like that idea that there's different kinds of anger, that there's this kind of righteous anger that can spar you to change the world. And then there's that kind of more toxic anger that's just, you know, road ragey kind of stuff. And being able to sort of fine tune your relationship to expressing your emotions is one of the things I think that you kind of confront when you get to this age. But it's not that hormones are making you angry. It's just, I think it's just much more that you're not suppressing anger that you carry Mm. around with you all the time. It's like Sam's mom and Lily saying, you know, you've just been swallowing it down for so long. And when you stop, to a certain extent, you go through that, I don't know about you, but a phase of it it feeling out of control because it's all bubbling up. And then it becomes more, more productive, I suppose. It feels more controlled and productive. I think that's right. And I think it also, one of the things Sam's notices is that when she does express it wildly, lashes out, and I think it is because it's been held in so long, uh, and she feels out of control, but it, and it also feels, uh, you know, a little bit humiliating to lose control like that. And, and, and you feel the cortisol surging through your body and, you know, and she finds it doesn't make her feel better. So kind of calibrating, like when's an appropriate time to, you know, I do think the guy with the suitcase and the plane, yeah, he deserved to get yelled at. 
Oh, oh God, totally those guys. And then, and then they always sit down next to you and put their arms on both of the armrests. Oh. You're just like, guys. The man spreading mm-hmm. thing a few years ago, people talked about how men, you know, will sit with their legs apart mm-hmm. and kind of take up a lot of space and women will be, you know, contained. And I do get really upset. And then I just think, okay, there's other things more important to be upset about. But just that, like how you inhabit space and go through the world inhabiting space. Yeah. Once you notice it, you can't unnotice it. <laughs> a lot of the women that I've spoken to have talked about how, and in fact, I think I might have seen you mention Darcy Stanky's book, Flash Count Diaries, which is for anybody listening who hasn't read it, it's absolutely brilliant. And I really recommend it. And she talks about it as well. But a lot of the women I've spoken to have talked about how they feel like as they're getting through menopause, they start to feel much more like their pre-adolescent self and more comfortable about whether it's, I don't mean like dressing like a mad old lady or a five-year-old girl, but, you know, a bit more comfortable in themselves and a bit less concerned with what's going on around them the way you were when you were a little kid before all the things about what you should and shouldn't be doing came in. Did you find that? Yeah, I mean, I think that you do feel a little bit less self-conscious, I think, because I guess at a certain point, you can't really hide that you're no longer 21. And then you're sort of, why was I so scared of this? You know, this is actually not bad. I still feel strong in all these ways. So I think it's partially that. But I also think there's bad sides to that too, that adolescent feeling. I mean, adolescence is a time where your body is changing fast and you feel out of control. And I think it's part of the reason why people tend to get uh, eating disorders you know, that wanting that control of the body. And I think that something can happen similar in menopause too. I mean, obviously your body's never within your control. The kind of fast changes that you get uh, can put you in a bit of an identity crisis. It can make you feel out of sorts and uncomfortable at the same time. So I think, you know, it feels adolescent in good and bad ways. I mean, I don't know about you, but adolescence was not that much fun, you know? (laughs) (laughs) It wasn't my favorite time. (laughs) But I think there is something to that, those fast changes. It is equivalent, right? faster body changes and why it is particularly with people who go through, you know, that we get those fast changes. And I think it is very different. I mean, men do have a gradual decline, but it's so gradual. They don't have this drama that we have, the body drama that we have. It's kind of like a reverse puberty, isn't it? But with the responsibility of being someone who's 50 and without the support the adolescents, if they're lucky, get through puberty. Well, that's the thing which really inspired Sam was just that right at the moment when you have the most demands on you because your parents are fading and maybe dying or, you know, you're losing that generation and that falls often on women and your kids are growing up, especially if you waited to have kids like many women do now. You have these demands and career. If you have a career, my character does not have a career. Right at those times, those, you, your body is not cooperating, is sort of forcing you to look inward, forcing you to pay attention to your own body. And maybe that's a good thing. I don't know. But it it feels like hard to manage all of those things at once and then also have this. So um, so I think that that is what drives her crisis, that she's just kind of and lack of sleep really is something profoundly, you know, it, it really changes who you are when you're not sleeping. I wrote the book during bouts of insomnia, I just got up and said, well, you know, I'm just going to write now because I can't sleep. And then tomorrow will be a terrible day because I haven't <laughs> slept. But for now, it's going to give me something to do rather than lie in bed and, you know, ruminate.
It's like the 3 a.m. kind of anxiety writ incredibly large, isn't it? That Those kind of bouts of insomnia that you call the mids in the book, which is, it really nails it. But also at that moment of, for Sam in the book, when she doesn't have to worry about waking anyone up anymore. Yeah. And you realize how much, you know, that insight that you have where you realize how much of what is a problem is a problem because I'm in, I'm in bed with you. <laughs> <laughs> and maybe if I were in my own bed alone, it wouldn't be so much of a problem. Yeah, I mean, I think one of the things that was interesting in the book was, you know, she's a very reckless character. She throws away this, you know, not so bad marriage and uh, it has an impact on her daughter. It has an impact on him and and everyone. And she does this, you know, reckless thing. But I also was interested in that too, that women don't usually get to do reckless things. You know, we judge women characters, characters, they're mm. not even real. <laughs> But they get judged more for doing these things. And so I really wanted it to kind of be slightly perverse what she was doing. I didn't want her to have a really great, you know, reason for doing it, like her husband was cheating on her or she, you know, or even that she fell in love with an, another person. I just wanted her to just kind of get up and leave. And that was interesting to me. And the assumption that everybody makes is that he's leaving her. Yeah, which is so so upsetting, right? So, yeah. It's so interesting because I don't know whether you're aware of it, but I've actually had someone on the podcast, Lucy Kellaway, who actually did it. Oh, I've, okay. I've I don't know a number of women who have done that. I believe you sort of did, not quite the same, but um, she, Lucy Kellaway, went and saw a very modern, modern house, fell in love with it, and bought it and and then left her husband <laughs> and also left her job and became a teacher and all you know but but I think that I mean that's a really extreme example but I mean she described it and lots of women I've spoken to who've made changes of whatever degree in their lives have said it wasn't really like I wanted to make the change more like an imperative it was like driven to make that change. But also she said in a way, buying the house and then telling her husband she bought it was easier than like telling him she wanted to leave him and then buying the house. It's so interesting because that's precisely what my character does is she doesn't realize she's leaving her husband until she realizes she's, you know, on the way home. Oh, I bought this house because I'm going to go live there, you know? And um, and you're not invited. <laughs> yeah. And it, it's, and of course she does backslide and keep sleeping with him and you know, she doesn't really cut off the ties completely. But uh, I think making a radical change, maybe there's a point where you feel if you're going to have a different life, this is your last chance to do that. And of course, that's not really true, right? Mm -hmm. You can change your life radically at any time. But it, I do think the older you get, the harder it is to change because there is so much life there, right? The status quo becomes bigger and bigger and bigger. And so I do think part of it is that feeling of, can I still upend it? What does that look like? Would I still be me if I we're in a different context and how much of who you are of your identity is you know shaped by who you're married to and where you live and all of those questions and I do think there's also this idea somehow that women in particular I'm sure some other people feel this way too do have this sense of, of uh, the space that they inhabit shapes who they are in a way I mean their relationship to architecture seems very very intense like if I'm living in this house I will be a different person I don't yeah. know if that's really true but it's somehow how you imagine it the way that maybe some men think if I were with this other woman this young woman I would be a young man again you know yeah I think I'm trying to think whether I'm making it up or whether Lucy actually she did say that whether she said I wanted to be the kind of person who lived in that house right well you know if you look at like a Philip Johnson glass house or something 
there's no way that I would still be me living in that house. I mean, I would have to change so much. <laughs> I would be changed by that house, you know. You'd have to have less stuff. Not less, that I'm saying you've got stuff, a lot of yeah. stuff, but, you know. You'd have to be willing to, you know, see out and be looked at in a way that you don't. And it would definitely change who you are. I was interested by the point you made earlier about the fact that it's about mortality, that it's not about wrinkles. And I think so much of women in aging is reduced to, oh, she just doesn't want to not be pretty anymore. And are you are you not going to have Botox? And are you are you not going to go grey? And it's almost like diminished by reducing it to appearance rather than bigger factors in your life. Yeah, I agree. Uh, definitely was very deliberate. You know, Sam does not look in the mirror. She doesn't really think about her looks very much. Other people might, you know, comment, oh, you you look different. You cut your hair. And she does want to be strong. And she goes to the gym to be strong. She likes the way that feels. But it isn't about that. And I think partially there's two things. One is I think that, you know, you're downgraded as a cultural object starting in your 30s anyway, you know. So by the time you're 50, I mean, that ship is sailed. No, but, uh, you know, that's a losing battle that you figure out pretty soon. But I also think that it is a degrading thing. It is reductive to say being middle age is painful because you you're losing your looks. It really, for me, I, I think it's about much bigger issues of sort of confronting the finiteness of your life. And also that, you're, you know, I think Sam feels, the character feels that she's not prepared for what's to come. And there mm -hmm. is that realization that the first part of your life, the beginnings, is very, very different from the second part of your life where there's much more loss. And that if you haven't figured out how to have the whole thing make sense for you, then you haven't done all the work you need to do, right? Because that is the terms. We know those are the terms. They're the terms for all of us. But for some reason, she gets there and she thinks, oh, I thought it was just going to be, you know, 40 more years of what it was like before, right? I get to hang out with my mom and my daughter and, you know, like, not that she's delusional, but, you know, that there is going to be loss and diminishment. And maybe you need to recast how you think about the world in order to survive that, to go through it, whatever that word survive means. And I do think there's something about the chasing of youth, this is not a profound idea, that is delusional and is a way of trying to avoid thinking about aging for both men and women, for everyone. It really is just not wanting to think about the whole life and what that really means and how it ends. And maybe if you are thinking about the whole life, then maybe what you'd spend time on would be different, right? Maybe your responsibility toward the world would look different. Maybe how you'd live would be different. So I think that those were interesting questions. I mean, I don't have the answers to those questions, <laughs> but I thought those were interesting questions to ask and that kind of foundational questioning, like, have you done enough with what you've been given? You know, are you happy with the trajectory that your life is on, given that it, that it is finite, that it isn't endless? And that's the thing about youth is youth is a feeling that this is endless. And middle age is the feeling where it's we know it's not endless. And that's a very different and more accurate perception of life. <laughs> <laughs> you and I are almost exactly the same age. I mean, how did going through the menopause affect your outlook on life, your perception of it? I think uh, in the ways that we describe I do feel like I think about the whole length of a life in a different way. But I think what I love about getting older is that you are still all those ages that you were. I thought when you got older, you'd sort of forget what it's like to be young or feel really far away. But I remember so vividly being 16, 17. I remember so vividly being 25. So in a way, I do understand now what wisdom is and that as we age, we have all of that in us still as vivid as it ever was. 
and we get more and more and more of it. And so that accumulation of experience and observation, that is really amazing. And I would not want to go back. I would not want to not know what I know and have seen what I've seen. I would love to have more time and have a youthful body. Of course I would. But I think uh, emotionally and intellectually, the things that you get as you age are amazing, you know? Don't you feel that way? Yeah, no, I do. I was thinking a lot about it when I was reading Wayward because I was thinking about the notion of privilege. I have loved being 55. I love being in my 50s once I got the whole periods thing out of the way. And I wouldn't want to go back. But then I started to think that, you know, it's it's a privilege. Your Sam is privileged to be able to buy, albeit a very cheap house and leave her husband and the middle-aged women with their sculpted shoulders and their balayage. And, you know, that's a privilege. And then the absolutely brilliant character, MH, who we haven't even mentioned, but, you know, she is approaching menopause in her eyes, revolutionary way, but in five hundred dollar biker boots. I have made a big thing of saying, you know, I love being in my 50s. It's been my best decade by a long way. And I love being 55 and I wouldn't go back. By the same token, I think I am in quite a position of privilege to be able to say that. Yes. And I would think about even aging being much older and how the privilege is not just a class privilege, but also your health, right? Mm. I mean, for some people, 50s and 60s, health starts to really seriously decline in a way that is very unlikely to happen when you're young. You know, if you're living with chronic pain or, you know, disabling health issues, which definitely can happen to women our age and people our age. And I do think that that's one of the things the book is about is what do you do with that luck and that privilege? And, you know, what are your responsibilities, you know, not just to your daughter or to your friends or to yourself, but what are your bigger responsibilities, a world full of children? And I was kind of like thinking about this kind of weird narcissism that comes with a certain class of woman where their child is, becomes their obsession and it feels selfless in a way because they're taking care of someone else. But it's like way more than the child needs. And then there's a whole world full of children that in need that you're not taking care of. I was kind of, you know, interrogating that too, that kind of, you know, hyper parenting and putting your child, you know, as your obsession. It doesn't seem healthy. No. No. How old is your daughter? (laughs) She's 18. (laughs) So were you, she going through puberty at the same time as you were going through menopause? Yeah, pretty much. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, it was a great combo. Uh, (laughs) thankfully she's very different from Allie in the book Allie's a little bit more like I was when I was that age and uh, that's the daughter you know she's quite she imagines that she knows everything and her brain is peak you know top brain but she has zero experience so she doesn't even know what she doesn't know and she's just very dangerous for that reason to herself I was kind of like that was kind of a pretty I was a pretty arrogant 16 year old Mm -hmm. you know I just was like geez I'm smarter than everybody and I can see their hypocrisy they're so full of it And, and of course it's very easy to recognize the hypocrisy of adults when you have done very little living. And um, you could be 100% right, but you don't have as much compassion or empathy that I think that aging kind of brings that along. Yeah. Yeah. That notion of you don't know what you don't know is I remember the first time I heard someone say it, um, I was probably in my 30s and I was at work and someone said it about one of their members of staff. And I thought, oh my God, that's so patronizing and insulting. And then as you get older, you start to think, ah, I know what that means now. (laughs) And I didn't. She was right. I didn't know. Yeah. And what's so hard to explain to a smart young person, such as what I was, is that you can read all you want about anything. And that is very different than experiencing it, you know? So, you know, you'd say like, oh, well, if 
someone did that. If a boss sexually harassed me, I would do this, you know? Mm. And then you're in it and you realize, oh, wait a minute, this is much more fraught than I realized. It's much harder to stand up for yourself. It's much harder to talk to someone about it, you know? And then you realize, well, what else am I completely wrong that I'm passing all these judgments on? You know, that's another thing is that that kind of uh, another way of looking at privilege too, is that, you know, you haven't, oh, if that were me, I would do this. And then that you actually come up against that experience and you sort of see, okay, there's a lot I don't understand about the world and I haven't experienced and, and you're less less willing to, to judge other people, I think. Yeah, I think there's a real sense. I mean, certainly when I've worked with younger women, I found it was impossible to make them understand the stuff that some women of our generation had put up with and why. And why, I think is really hard to explain, you know. Even to ourselves, you know, I think that when we look back and we think, well, clearly that was bad behavior. Why didn't I recognize it as such? And I think it goes back to somewhat of what we were talking about earlier of this idea of like kind of wanting to make everything nice all the time. And But it was also, I think, it, these complicated ideas of what female resilience really is, which I'm still trying to question myself and understand, which is that I think for our generation, that kind of post-second wave feminism, we were really taught to think, uh, I can endure anything. I'm tough. I'm, I'm hard. And there was something to that, right? But there was also something that that kind of let other people off the hook for, you know, that is, I think I'm learning from younger women. No, you know, like that is real harm that you can call people out, you know? So this is very complicated. And I just think it's really interesting to let it be complicated and have those conversations. And I do see generational difference in approaches to some of that stuff. Yeah. And I think the allowing it to be complicated is tricky at the moment, particularly. I mean, I, I remember we on the pool, which was my last thing that I, I worked on, we ran a, a piece about periods and it was right at the beginning of that talking about periods thing. And, you know, I had spent my entire career walking across offices, even offices full of women with tampons shoved up my sleeve, you yes. know, rather than... And here was this piece that was basically saying, you know, you should talk about it. And if you've got period pain, then work from home. And and I, I had to really kind of sit down and have a chat with myself because I had gone through my entire career, not exactly playing down being a woman, but a bit because of that, you know, you said you have to, you have to be as tough as them. You have to be as resilient as them. You have to not give them any excuses rather right. than the onus being on them to just behave better. <laughs> right. Right. And then maybe that was a mistake, you know, you know, I do try to listen as much as possible to my daughter and to other young women when they talk about these things. And I do find it very interesting. It's really interesting how you have these narratives of your life and your experiences, and you're constantly recasting them based on how you go through the world and what you've experienced. And there, there are definitely things that I've, I've recast in the last few years because of Me Too and because of the conversation around um, those issues. Yeah, I think it's, I mean, certainly one of the things that they, the young women that I worked with taught me was that, you know, much as they don't necessarily know because they're younger, you don't necessarily know because you're older. Yeah, you know? that's true. That's true. Before I go to the questions that I always ask at the end, I just want to talk to you about one more thing, weirdly, which is blood. Because yeah. it really struck me when I read, no spoilers, but when I read the bit about blood, that it's so rarely talked about in the context of menopause. There are lots of things that we don't know about menopause, but given that ultimately it's your last ever period. And I loved when you described it as, you know, the wacky perimenopause periods, because they are 
all over the place. I mean, literally, aren't they? They are insane. And it's like, because it's just part of our biology, the kind of the pain and the mess and the inconvenience, it's just normal. It's just natural. Just put up with it. Right. You won't know your la- it's your last period until a year later, yeah. <laughs> right? Yeah. And maybe this one is the last one. And then there's one more. And it's such a weird, it's monumental because your first one's kind of monumental, right? Yeah. And your last one is kind of, yeah, it's a very strange. And I do think that, that our relationship to blood, uh, people who menstruate, your relationship to blood uh, is very different than, than people who don't. And uh, you're sort of comfortable with blood in a way. You're intimate with blood. And I think Darcy gets it in her book that you have this kind of more corporal relationship to the world because you're constantly reminded that you inhabit a body and the body has this substance in it. And it can be alarming, but it can also just be normal, right? And that's not true. Like men, when they bleed, that something's wrong, right? (laughs) And just as we are also, you know, kind of endure uh, pain in a regular way, that doesn't mean that we're dying, right? So all of that is, it it must make us very different in some ways, or at least our relationships to our body and to pain and to blood is different. Yeah, Yeah, I just thought it was really fascinating. It only occurred to me when I was reading it that I don't remember reading even, you know, nonfiction books about menopause where anybody even talks about it. Well, because it's gross, right? (laughs) (laughs) So much of it is, isn't it? So, you know, there's that moment at the end of Ulysses where Molly has her period, you know, and he kind of writes really, because that's his thing, right? He's going to write about snot, he's going to write about periods, whatever. And, you know, I like the idea of if you're going to write a character very intimately inhabit them, then, you know, you can talk about the whole experience of being human. I kind of like that in a writer. Right. I'm going to ask you the questions I always ask at the end. What's your emotional age? Ah! <laughs> I do think there's a part of me that's kind of permanently 18. Was 18 good? Yeah. I mean, it was where I finally felt that I could go anywhere and read anything. You know, my mind felt like it had kind of opened up in a way that was really exciting. Give us a book recommendation. It could be something that's been really significant or it could just be the last great book you read. Um, I really like the Katie Kitamura book, Intimacies, which I've read a couple times now because I've taught it. And uh, it's really good. It's very compressed, which I like. Oh, Um, I love a small book. Yeah. And you can't put it down. It reads like a thriller, but it's got this existential kind of 1960s, very stylized feel to it. The style is really uh, impressive. And what it's about too, it's about this woman who works at The Hague as a translator and, you know, and she translates for these horrible perpetrators in The Hague. And and very much into this idea that that we discussed about complicity and privilege and your relationship, you know, uh, if if you're adjacent to certain things and how they affect you. Great. What advice would you give younger women? I guess I would say, and this is such an obvious thing, but to not let, and especially with where we are now with social media, to understand that what feels powerful about being a sexual object, being beautiful, being attractive, being regarded as beautiful in a very constrained, narrow way, it costs you more than you realize. (laughs) (laughs) And that it isn't so much that you're just going to be objectified or judged, but it really curdles who you are to submit to that. Yeah, that's a difficult one to explain, isn't it? It is. It's very hard to resist 
the feeling of power that you get from it, but it costs you so much more than you get. Who is your old bird role model? <laughs> Joy Williams, without a doubt, is my role model. She's just amazing older woman, you know, in her 70s. And my mother, I would say too. Uh, what's your superpower? I think I'm very, um, my superpower is that I'm pretty much of a clown. I, I make jokes pretty, pretty easily and constantly. And it, that's a good superpower to have. Yeah. Is that your weapon? My weapon. It can be, but I think it's a, it's a way of deflecting too. You know, self-deprecation becomes a way of uh, avoiding things as well. So it's a kind of a default. It can be an undermining superpower, I think. <laughs> and lastly, how many fucks do you give? <laughs> Zero. <laughs> no, I, I do actually still, I still care a lot too much about I have to say about what other people think of me and uh, what other people think of my books and what I am as a mother and how I look. I wish I could say I was free of those things, but I still have way too many. Fewer than I used to, but but they're still there. Do you read your reviews? <sighs> um, my husband reads them. <laughs> <laughs> and sometimes I do and sometimes I don't. Sometimes I can't help it if it's like a big important one. I, I try to create some distance. I certainly don't read the ones on Amazon or, oh my God, or no, no. any of those. No, no, I'd never do that. But uh, yeah, but if it's in a big newspaper and I know everyone else has seen it, it's hard not to, to read it. What about you? Uh, I care more than I should, but less than I did. Right, right. Yeah, I suppose. I mean, I want to say I don't care what people think of me and I definitely care a lot less, but I can still lose sleep over that. <laughs> and, and while I'm sitting here on you know, the equivalent of Zoom, looking at my grey at the front of the, you know, <laughs> I don't yeah. care, but I do, you know. I do have a lot of vanity still about about how I look, I have to admit, but, um, but it, less than I used to. Yes, I guess maybe that's what we'll settle with. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> That's brilliant. Thank you so much for your time. It's been an absolute joy talking to you. Thank you so much, Sam. It was a really great conversation. I really appreciate it. Thank you for listening. You can hear a new episode of The Shift each Tuesday on Acast, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you like what you hear, please do rate, review, and follow, because it really does help other people find us. And if you'd like to know more about my own experience of shifting, my book, The Shift, How I Lost and Found Myself After 40, and You Can Too, is out now in paperback. See you next time. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.